Uh, back when I was in college in undergrad Oklahoma Christian, I had a professor, an older gentleman named Dr. Giger. Okay, he was my Greek teacher, and he had traveled all over the world. He'd been to pretty much every place listed in your Bible. He'd been to all the different biblical sites. He's a big archaeology kind of guy. And we learned very quickly as Greek students in his class that if we didn't want to do Greek on a specific day, what we needed to do was say, Dr. Giger, have you ever been to Ephesus? And then he would start, oh, yes, I've been to Ephesus. And he would tell us all about his trip to Ephesus. And for at least 15 or 20 minutes, we didn't have to do Greek because we were listening to him go off on a big tangent about Ephesus. Okay? Finally, about the sixth or seventh city in about two-week period, he realized what we were doing. And he said, I'm not doing that again. I'm on point. It's time to do Greek. Okay? But for a good while, we could throw him off on tangents. Right, and a lot of people think that when we come to Romans 9, 10, and 11, that what Paul is doing is he's basically gone off on a tangent. Okay, he had his main argument. We've talked about all these things for all of these chapters through 1 through 8. And then he gets back to his main argument in chapter 12. But for these middle sections, Paul basically has a tangent. I've heard several sermons before. I've read books before that basically think Romans 9 through 11 are nothing more than an aside for Paul and that this section has nothing much to do with us. Okay, basically this line of thinking says that for eight chapters, Paul is talking about all these big ideas about salvation and justification, the spirit, all of these big important things, but then he's distracted by this nagging question in the back of his mind. Okay, this thought about his own people, about the Jews, and he just can't get it out of his head, and so he goes off on this three-chapter digression before finally coming back in chapter 12 to the part that we care about. I've even seen studies in Romans which just lead out chapters 9 through 11, saying they don't really have a whole lot to do with us, so let's just skip them. All right, and I take issue with that because I think if we truly understand what Paul is doing in this center section in chapter 9, 10, and 11, we see just how central it is to his argument as a whole. Okay, but these are complicated chapters. Okay, you can go read six commentaries, get seven different ways of interpreting these chapters. And so if you disagree with my interpretation of this section of Romans, you can be forgiven. You would be wrong, but you can be forgiven. I mean, I'm a doctor now, right? So you have to believe me. Okay, but before we start reading, uh, I want to point out that these three chapters are really structured like a psalm. Okay, if you take Romans 9, 10, 11, you see that this section starts with lament. And then after the lament part, Paul talks about the history of how God has worked in the past. Then he briefly looks at what God is doing now. And finally, he concludes this with a doxology of praise. Okay, if you've read many of the Psalms, this structure should look familiar to you. Many of the Psalms in your Bible are structured just like this. Okay, also, like many Psalms, these chapters have what's called a chiastic structure. Okay, basically, that just means that the first part parallels the last part, the second to the last part parallels the second part, and so on. Okay, so if you really want to know what's going on in 9, 6 through 29, you also need to read 11, 1 through 32. 
Okay, also, if you really want to know what this entire three-chapter section is about, you need to look at that middle paragraph in 10, 5 through 13, because all of these three chapters center on that one middle paragraph. Okay, don't turn there right now, because we'll talk about that when we get there. Okay, but if you really want to understand these three chapters, you need to understand that all of this goes together. And so what I really need to do this morning is I need to take just about three or so hours and cover this entire section. Okay, it's the only way to do justice to this. The only way to really get our minds around these three chapters is for us to just stay here all day. And I know that all of you would just sit here diligently and studiously and would, with a smile on your face, listen to me for the next three hours. Okay, but I have been told, I've been told repeatedly that the most endearing quality of my preaching is my brevity. So you will have to struggle with me breaking this up and butchering this text and covering it over the next several weeks. Okay. All right, but I want you to notice how this starts. Notice the lament section starting in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Right, Paul tells us he's experienced true agony in his soul over the fact that so many of the Jews, his own people, have missed out on the kingdom of God. Jesus brought the kingdom of God with his resurrection and the very people who were in the best position to see it, those who should have been at the forefront shouting the hosannas, the people who should have inherited the kingdom in all of its glory, for the most part have missed it entirely. Paul says he would give up anything up to his very soul if only the Jewish people would accept Jesus as the Messiah. Okay, so what does this mean? Verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. All right, so God makes a covenant with Abraham a long time ago. We read about that covenant back in Genesis 12. We've talked about that covenant, I think, pretty much every week that we've been in the book of Romans. Okay, don't forget about the covenant. But Paul's point here is not all of Abraham's children get to be part of the covenant. The covenant doesn't go through Abraham's oldest son, Ishmael. Instead, it only goes through his second son, Isaac. God narrowed down who is in the covenant. Keep going, verse 10. He says, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, 
she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Okay, so yet again, what is God doing? We see he has narrowed down his covenant. Okay, first it was through Isaac, not Ishmael. Now it's through Jacob and not Esau. Or really, this is like a multi-generational divine game of the bachelor. Okay, not every descendant of Father Abraham gets a flower. Okay, we narrow it down further and further. Who gets to be the covenant people? Okay, that was funny. Y'all should have caught that. That was hilarious. Okay. Or y'all need to watch more TV or less TV or something. I don't know. Okay, God has narrowed down his covenant. Okay, and any Jew reading Paul knows that he could have talked about how God continued to narrow down the covenant people over time. Okay, back in the days of King Saul, long ago, a thousand years before Paul is writing, okay, King Solomon is the last king over the united monarchy. After he is gone, the kingdom is ripped into 12 of the tribes of Israel that we started with now are narrowed down only to two. We lose 10 entire tribes. God says only the covenant will go through these two tribes. Now it will only be through the nation of Judah. Okay, yet again, we narrow down the covenant. Judah gets conquered by the Babylonians. We all go off into Babylonian captivity. Many of the Jews decide to stay in Babylon. They'd rather be Babylonians and Persians. Only a small remnant gets to come home and God declares my covenant won't go through those that stayed. It only goes through the small remnant. Over time, we narrow it down and we narrow it down and we narrow it down. Who gets to be part of this covenant people? We talk about the remnant, the remnant, the remnant through the entire last part of the Old Testament. Where is this covenant? It is with a very small group of people. God continued to narrow down who gets to be his covenant people. Why? Why does God do this? Okay, verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Okay, that sounds pretty deterministic, doesn't it? Okay, maybe God will have mercy on you. Or maybe he will harden your heart just like Pharaoh. Don't you hope this morning that you're not Pharaoh? Verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? You know, I have a distant cousin. Uh, he actually lives in the Dallas area, and he is also a preacher. And he preaches full-fledged predestination. Okay, this particular theology latches on to Scripture, such as Romans 9, and it teaches that everything about your life, 
Okay, especially whether or not you will be saved by God is all a matter of God's choice that he made long before you were ever born. You were predestined either to go to heaven or to go to hell for all of eternity, and there's really nothing you can do about it. Okay, this teaching is called predestination. You are a lump of clay in God's hands. God can make out of you whatever he wants you to be. So maybe you're lucky. Okay, maybe before you were ever born, God predestined you for glory. You get to be one of his children. You get to be one of the saved. You get to be a Christian. And when you die, you will go and be with God for all of eternity in a loving relationship with him. Congratulations. Maybe, though, you were not so lucky. Maybe before you were born, God chose you to be outside of his kingdom. And like Pharaoh, God has hardened your heart. And no matter what choices you make, you will die and be damned for all of eternity. And there is nothing in the world that you can do about it. All you can do as a piece of clay in the hands of God is hope that he has predestined you to be on his side. Okay, now, I've got a couple of problems with that line of thinking. Uh, but my first problem with predestination is, if it's true, then I should not be here this morning. Instead, I should be playing golf. Okay, why bother with church? Rather than being kind to others, I should just tell everyone what I really think. Okay, that would be fun for about 20 minutes, I think, right? Rather than try with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength to be more like Jesus, I should just kick back and relax and say, you know what, I can't do anything about it one way or the other, so I'm just going to take it easy. Maybe I'm one of the saved. If so, that's great. If not, then I surely should just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die anyway and there's nothing in the world I can do about it. Okay, my first problem with predestination is that you really can't live as if it's true. Okay, it is really hard to live as if none of your choices actually matter. Okay, my second problem with predestination is that I think it reads the Bible as if it's written to individuals rather than to groups of people. Okay, I contend quite strongly that the Bible is not written to you as an individual person. It is written to groups of people. Okay, most modern Western people tend to think of ourselves as individuals first and then part of a group second. Most Eastern cultures in the world today and most ancient cultures like the one Paul lives in do this the opposite way. Okay, first off, you are a member of a group. Secondly, you're an individual. Okay, so what does that mean for what we're talking about in Romans? Okay, I think that God has predestined that his group of people, the kingdom of God people, the disciples of Jesus, the members of his church, that people will be saved. Okay, you remember what we talked about last week? No matter what we suffer, no matter what happens in our world, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are destined for glory. The people of God are predestined to be saved. And yet, even though God has predestined his kingdom people to be saved, we as individuals get to decide whether or not we want to repent and follow Jesus and become part of that salvation covenant kingdom people. Does that make any sense? Okay, so God's people will be saved. Now, do you want to be one of them? 
All right, notice where Paul goes from this, verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. All right, so what's the purpose of all of this? I know this is a lot of text. I know this is not something we typically read on a Sunday morning for the scripture reading. Okay, but what is the purpose of Romans 9? What's the so what from this text? Why does Paul talk about this narrowing down of who gets to be in the covenant? Why does he talk about hardening Pharaoh's heart? How does any of this change anything for you and I as we try to live kingdom lives starting tomorrow? Okay, two things. All right, in the first place, I think this is important because I think Paul is using this to talk about how it is okay that God saved all of us Gentiles even though we weren't descended from Abraham. Okay, the vast majority of us, in fact, I think all of us except maybe two of us sitting in here this morning, are Gentiles. We aren't children from Abraham biologically, so how in the world do we get to be part of God's people? Okay, did God keep his promise to Israel? Yes. Okay, we as Gentiles can be grafted in to the covenant family. Right, we'll hit this a lot harder in chapter 11, right, which is the parallel passage of what we're talking about in chapter 9. You know, I remember when Luke was born, uh, and there was seemed like 100 people in the room when Luke was born. Okay, and it's your first child, and you're so excited about it, and he's finally born, and we get to take the first little picture. He's still all covered in goop, but you don't care because that's your kid. Okay? And I remember seeing that little boy for the first time, and I loved him. Okay? All he could do was lay there and do nothing, but I loved him. Why? Because that's my kid. All right, and then I remember a few years later, Sam was born. Okay, and again, it seems like there's a thousand people in the room and all of a sudden there he is and he's squalling and squealing and I looked at him and I saw my second son and I loved him. Why? Just because he's my kid. Now, when we had our second kid and I poured out all this love on my second kid, did that decrease the love I had for my first child in any way? Did I suddenly love Luke less and say, you know what, you're kind of old news we got your new younger brother here, and now I'm really going to pour out my love on him, and you know, we'll hope that we don't have a third because then he's going to get displaced, right? Okay. Or did I love both of my sons? Okay, I love both my sons. Why? Because having love for the second son doesn't decrease the love I had for the first son. Okay, God had his original children, Israel, 
But now Paul is going to great lengths to show how God can make the Gentiles his children too, and that doesn't decrease his love for Israel. God is big enough to love all of his kids, and it all still fits in that original promise that God made to Abraham so long ago. All right, second thing, second reason this is important for us, and I think more importantly for this passage, is I think that Paul ultimately is showing how this narrowing of the covenant, this narrowing of who gets to be a true child of Abraham, who gets to be a true heir of the covenant, doesn't stop when we get to a remnant in Israel. I think in the final reckoning, Jesus shows up and he looks around and says, even the remnant, even the people who are still holy in spite of the Roman Empire, in spite of all the people who have fallen away over all of the generations, in spite of all of that, we still have this remnant doing temple worship in Jerusalem. And even that small remnant of families still couldn't keep the covenant. The final reckoning is nobody could keep this covenant. I think the final point of narrowing where Paul's ultimately going is this covenant gets narrowed down and narrowed down and narrowed down until finally it's just Jesus. I think the only true heir of the covenant of Abraham is Jesus Christ. Okay, so what does this mean for us? It means that we get to be loved children of God, not because of how special we are, not because of who we were born to, not because we could keep the covenant so well, but we get to be children of God because of his grace and mercy. God provided Jesus so that we could keep this covenant through his faithfulness. Ultimately, it all comes back to Jesus, right? It all comes back to whether or not we're truly following All right, we'll continue this line of thought as we continue on into chapter 10 next week. And before we have an invitation song this morning, um, I want to speak a word of blessing over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace.